The Guardian. Mutating viruses may sound like the stuff of a sci-fi disaster movie, but not only are they very real, they're also completely normal. When viruses self-replicate, they often make mistakes copying their genetic code. Often, these mistakes are meaningless or even make the virus less virulent. But occasionally, they make the virus more infectious or better at evading our immune systems. This is what happened in the UK in September. Somewhere in Kent, scientists now believe, a patient passed on a mutated variant of COVID-19, one which was around 50% more infectious. And it began to spread. When the country was put in lockdown in November, cases in Kent kept rising. Soon, scientists realised that there was something new going around, a variant known as B117. Next came B1351, found in South Africa, which is also highly transmissible and has a mutation that suggests it could potentially offer some resistance to vaccines. In Tuesday's episode of the podcast, we took a look at these new variants and how genetic mutation surveillance works. Today, we're delving even further, asking how viruses can mutate and how they can end up evading our immune systems. It's about statistics. So, you know, maybe one in a million individuals will put pressure on the virus to generate a mutation that will then transmit to somebody else. So that's what explains the mutation rate that we see globally, uh, which is about two mutations fixing a month, let's say, or emerging each month amongst 10 to 100 million infections in that same period. I'm Sarah Bosley, and this is Science Weekly. To find out more, I spoke to Ravi Gupta, Professor of Clinical Microbiology at the University of Cambridge. Ravi, before we discuss any of the specifics of the new COVID variants or strains, could you explain how and when the SARS-CoV-2 virus mutates? Mutation is an inherent property of, of all viruses and especially RNA viruses. So RNA viruses are more prone to mutations. And one of the archetypical ones is, of course, HIV. And then there are a whole host of other RNA viruses such as influenza that are known to change fairly frequently. And so this is part of their survival strategy because these organisms can't survive on their own. They need to be in a host and in a complex animals, let's say. So they need to be able to overcome defenses and and generating diversity through mutation is a way that um, viruses and other pathogens can persist and overcome uh, immune defences in the in in the host, so it's an important part of their survival. In a typical infection, where you clear the virus, let's say within a week or two, there isn't really an opportunity for the virus to mutate or acquire mutations because the immune system hasn't really started becoming effective in terms of antibodies and T cell responses. Because the transmission happens quite soon after infection, usually during the asymptomatic period, but of course when you're symptomatic, depending on circumstances, the virus can transmit without acquiring any new mutations. The opportunity for fixing new mutations comes when the virus is faced with antibodies, let's say. So if the virus is still replicating in an individual and there are antibodies in the circulation, then those antibodies will lock onto a, a proportion of those viruses and stop them replicating. 
But there will be a few viruses in the body that have acquired a mutation through a general mistake in the replication machinery. And that mutation may offer an advantage against the antibody in that the antibody may not be able to recognize that virus anymore. And then that virus can then make many more copies of itself. And so you then get a new population of viruses in that person. It hasn't actually been shown in an immune competent person. The, the evidence for emergence of mutations that affect antibody neutralization generally come from immune compromised individuals because those are the guys or the individuals who have um, cro these chronic infections that go on over months. So for those who haven't heard Monday's episode, could you perhaps give us a quick recap of how the B117 variant was first detected, uh, what in it had mutated, and what made this variant different to any of the others that have been found before? It was detected in the first place because the COG-UK sequencing consortium was systematically sequencing positive nose and throat swabs, and that allowed a database to be established. And there was an investigation about uh, rapidly rising cases in the southeast. They had uh, established that the sequence wasn't the same as what was circulating. Previously, there was something new here. At the same time, my group was investigating chronic infection and evolution of viruses, and we found a deletion in the spike protein at 6970. And we had then started looking at the database and of course, we're part of COG UK. So we came from a, a different angle, but stumbled across this expanding lineage with many, many sequences in that had appeared to arise from a common source sequence, as it were, which had multiple mutations in spike, as well as in other parts of the genome. And there were a total of eight mutations in the spike protein that lead to coding changes, a further six mutations that lead to coding changes in other parts of the virus. This was unprecedented, certainly in the UK, because although we've seen mutations occur in the receptor binding domain. We've not really seen many other mutations on top of this, uh, certainly not this number. So anyone who was looking at uh, sequences at the time would have been uh, taken aback by this. And I think it was then established that this variant was overtaking the previously dominant strains in the UK, suggesting that it had a survival advantage or a transmission advantage. And a number of other strands of data came together to back up that claim. Which of the genetic mutations are causing it to be more transmissible? That's a little bit unclear at the moment. Uh, we did some specific experiments with the 6970 deletion, which again is a mutation that's coming up again and again worldwide, which again is a danger sign that this is something the virus likes to do and easily acquires this mutation. When we make that mutation in a simplified spike protein, we get something like a twofold increase in the infectiousness of the spike protein on target cells. Now, it's possible that the 6970 is, is solely responsible for this increased transmissibility or that one of the other 22 mutations is also playing a role, and I would suspect it's a combination. Some of those mutations that have arisen will be deleterious, in other words, they'll bring the virus tighter or infectivity down, and some will compensate. So the overall effect is a virus that's probably more infectious by, you know, 50%, which is not a huge amount in terms of simplified viral systems of infection in culture. And what exactly is the 6970, just for people who wouldn't know that? It's a removal or a deletion. Um, it's the absence of two building blocks in the protein structure of, of the spike. And it's in a part of the spike domain that doesn't really interact with the critical um, human receptor ACE2, which mediates infection. 
So it's a bit unclear what it's actually doing, but it may be that it's changing the structure of the spike protein to increase infectivity somehow. And there's there's work going on to try and establish exactly what this deletion is doing, because it is important given it's arising in multiple different parts of the world, and we really need to know why. We were talking earlier about chronic illness and how that might make it more possible for the virus to mutate. You've done research on this, haven't you, in a specific chronically ill patient, I think, someone who received convalescent plasma as a treatment. What were you studying there and why? We uh, reported by preprint an individual who was immune suppressed um, because of lymphoma and who unfortunately contracted SARS-CoV-2 or COVID-19 back in April last year and uh, had received um, a, a chemotherapy drug called rituximab that really knocks out your antibody responses. And so this unfortunately led to the fact that he had a chronic infection and the levels of virus were fairly high and the individual became progressively more unwell and eventually succumbed to the illness. But in the interim, he was treated with convalescent plasma on two occasions And what we witnessed was quite dramatic shifts in the virus genetics. And we noted that uh, a couple of key mutations came up following convalescent plasma. One was the 6970 deletion that we've discussed, um, and another mutation in the spike protein that appeared to make the virus less susceptible to antibodies that were in the convalescent plasma that we then tested. So we found genetic evidence of things shifting around back and forth. And then we made the mutations in an artificial system in vitro and showed indeed that the mutations that came up did confer some kind of advantage to a virus when challenged with antibodies. So the introduction of antibodies put evolutionary pressure on the virus to adapt. Is is that right? That's absolutely right. It was the first evidence uh, in an individual in real time that this was actually happening. And what does that say then about the use of blood plasma? or the monitoring of immunocompromised and critically ill patients? It does sound caution to use of plasma, convalescent plasma, in people with immune compromise, uh, unless you're going to, to monitor individuals very carefully and keep them in isolation with regular testing, including sequencing of virus. Uh, but I think more broadly, it's probably less of a risk in people with competent immune systems or you know who who just have severe illness and have no obvious reason to be immune suppressed, I would be potentially less worried in those individuals because convalescent plasma may have a place in certain individuals. So I certainly wouldn't want to withhold this treatment from those who may benefit. But in immune compromise, we really do need to think hard about um, how it's used and how we monitor it because it only takes one case to generate you know, a major variant that spreads around the world as we've, as we've seen. Is there a problem with generally chronically ill patients, do you think? And the other thing that occurs to me actually is if you have someone who's chronically ill and maybe the virus adapts, it mutates within that patient, how would they go on to infect somebody else? You know, the people who are chronically ill are probably in hospital and therefore um, one would have thought they're safeguarded or the, the people around them are safeguarded. That's not always true. In fact, we have individuals who we are discussing at the medical meetings who are in the community who who aren't particularly unwell, but they still have positive SARS-CoV-2 shedding. So the opportunities for spread are there, and we're not finding out what the sequences are in many of these individuals. So it is a tricky situation, and we really do need some guidance, I think, from WHO and, and the government on this as we go forward. These types of adaptations become known as escape mutants. That's a pretty scary name. Are they something we need to be concerned about? 
the phrase escape mutants is a little bit worrying, but it can start with small degrees of changes in susceptibility. But one would want to add that once viruses have made even small adjustments that give them an advantage against a vaccine or an immune response, we don't want to give them any more opportunities to refine that change in susceptibility because eventually you do get escape. Uh, we know that viruses will eventually go the whole way, given the chance. You've looked at how blood plasma treatments might cause escape mutants, but what about vaccines? Scientists have suggested extending the time between vaccine doses, and we know the UK is doing that, uh, from 21 days for the Pfizer vaccine to 12 weeks. Now, that introduces a risk, not a necessarily a significant one, of course, for the virus to become immune and escape the vaccine. What's your view on this? It's a um, problem to come to a conclusion in the absence of data. We only have theoretical arguments for and against the proposed extension to 12 weeks. And I'm actually more in favour of high vaccine coverage levels to control the incredible levels of transmission that we are seeing. So I, I would probably then advocate for the 12-week extension if there were no other option uh, in order to vaccinate and uh, uh, as many people as possible. And of course, we may, if vaccine stocks allow, be able to you know, give the second dose before 12 weeks in the ideal sort of situation. There is a theoretical risk about suboptimal responses and then becoming infected and the mutation being selected. But I think that's a theoretical risk. It can happen. It would again have to happen in somebody without much of a of their own immune response, somebody who was going to become uh, chronically infected or become a shedder. Because anybody who was going to clear the virus quickly, if they get the vaccine and it's suboptimal, they will still mount their own immune response. So you're looking at vaccine failure in very small proportions. And I think this is outweighed by the overall protective improvement by giving uh, uh, twice as many people the vaccine. What's next in your research? We're very interested in whether zero from vaccinees can neutralise the new variant virus and, and also what the sort of protection levels are after the first dose. So this week we are testing sera from vaccinees against um, various mutations found in the UK variant and also looking at general responses three weeks after the first dose of vaccination. So, so those are the sort of things that we're doing at the moment. Longer term, we're also very interested in what the mechanics of the 6970 deletion are, because I think this is going to be a key driver that facilitates um, new variants. And if we can understand the mechanics of it, then I think we will be in a better place. Well, that's great. Thank you very much indeed. That's really interesting. Thank you. Thanks again to Ravi Gupta for joining me. That's it for this week. If you have any questions or comments you'd like to send in to us on the podcast, you can email on scienceweekly at theguardian.com. We'll be back next Tuesday. See you then. The Guardian. 